Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, and we will be reading chapter 27, beginning at verse 27 through the end of the chapter. Today we come to the, uh, the crucifixion of Christ, and so beginning at verse 27 of chapter 27, this is the word of the Lord. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments and among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man's calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. In 2004, I was a student at a Bible college that had a lot of rules, as Bible colleges are wont to do. There was a dress code. You couldn't wear jeans to class. You couldn't uh, wear a, a shirt without a collar. Your shirt had to have a collar, I should say. No flip-flops, which I'm from Southern California. That was a hard rule for me. You had the usual suspects, right? No drinking, no dancing. But the most notable rule 
uh, was that while you were living on campus and you were attending classes during the semester, you could not go see a movie at a movie theater. And then came a moment of crisis for the administration. A major motion picture was coming out by a Hollywood A-lister at the time about Jesus and about his crucifixion. Religious organizations and leaders were praising it. Evangelistic materials were going out. Uh, churches were driving in by the busloads of all different stripes, all different kinds of denominations and traditions. And I'm, of course, talking about Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. What would the administration do? How would they handle this moral dilemma for their students? A special dispensation was made. Students were now permitted to go to the movies, but only if that movie was The Passion of the Christ. I'm guessing many of you have either seen the film or you know enough about it to not really need to see it. But it's basically a two-hour depiction of Jesus' trial and crucifixion. It, it, is very, it takes it very seriously. I think it's very reverent toward the material, but it's incredibly violent. It's incredibly bloody, and it's incredibly painful to watch. And I'm starting here this morning because I still think it's funny they made this dispensation as if like, it would be a crisis of faith for students not to go see this movie. Like it's some kind of sacrament to go see The, the Passion of the Christ. But that movie is a notable cultural example of how we, the general public, including Christians, think about the cross. Think about the crucifixion. And obviously it's not just the passion of the Christ with its graphic portrayal of the crucifixion. Go to any museum in the West from Los Angeles to Paris to Rome and so many churches and cathedrals all over our communities in the world. And you will find so many artistic depictions of the cross. But listen to Matthew. Jesus is scourged by Pilate. He's mocked and struck by both the Jewish leaders and Roman soldiers. And then it all culminates in verse 35 when Matthew writes, and then they crucified him. That's it. That's all we get. And then they crucified him. One prominent New Testament scholar uh, writes, The crucifixion is more often portrayed in art than any other scene in history and yet has so crucial a moment ever been phrased so briefly and uninformatively. Before this week, I confess that I've never noticed just how little time Matthew spends on the actual crucifixion. And so what is he doing? What is his focus? And so despite the fact that we think of the cross, I think in very visual ways, that's not Matthew's angle at all. And so what's Matthew's angle, which I'm, I'm hoping is our angle today as well, it's what we hear that's the point that Matthew is bringing out. What do we hear? And so the question I think that Matthew is answering predominantly is who is the one who is being crucified? And the way Matthew answers that question is absolutely fascinating because the emphasis is on how Jesus is mocked. Those are the voices that we hear throughout this account. And he does this to highlight the irony of this scene, right? Jesus is mocked as king, but he is the king. Jesus is mocked as the one who will destroy the temple, but he does make the temple obsolete. Jesus is mocked as the Son of God, and Matthew's point is they are speaking the truth. He is the Son of God. As Matthew paints it for us, the more hate that is showered on Jesus, the more Jesus' haters fulfill Scripture. And so we'll look this morning at the insults that Jesus receives, because I think that is Matthew's point. 
What do we hear? What do we hear? Because when we're listening carefully, we see that the truth is actually proclaimed. We see Jesus for who he is and, of course, who he is for us. And so, three points this morning are just going to be the three main insults that Jesus receives that Matthew ironically says that is exactly who Jesus is. He's the king. He's the temple. He's the son of God. All right, so first of all, Jesus is our king. First thing we'll consider is how at the cross, Jesus is king. And I would also argue at the cross, Jesus is reigning as king. As we saw last week, he's condemned to die. And then in verse 27, the Roman soldiers, for no other reason but sheer cruelty, begin to mock Jesus. They strip Jesus of his clothes and they put a robe on him. We read it's red. It was probably the cape of a Roman centurion taken off of a soldier, put around Jesus as this mock regal garment. They twist together a crown of thorns. I think that's, that's less an instrument of, of pain and more just an instrument of mockery. I think that's the point. The, the, the thorns themselves may have been upturned and not pressed down on his head. Just to insult him, they twist the, the crown. They put it on his head. They put a reed in his hand. It's a mock scepter. And they knelt before him and they shouted, Hail, King of the Jews, just as they would shout, Hail, Caesar. They spit on him. And then they take away his mock scepter, they strike him, they put his clothes back on him, they remove the crown and the robe, and they led him to the cross where he was crucified. And when they had crucified him, as I mentioned already, that's all we get. There's no lingering on the horror of crucifixion. I think it's assumed. Crucifixion was execution that was bound up with public spectacle. It was designed to be the ultimate insult to human dignity. Totally and completely humiliating and degrading and intentionally dehumanizing. Like stripping the humanity off of the person being crucified. It's been said that crucifixion was a form of advertising. This is what happens when you cross the empire. This is what the empire can do to you. They can take away your humanity. This person is no longer a person or scum of the earth. Crosses were placed in wide open spaces to ensure that as many people as possible saw it. Roman citizens barely talked about it. There are so few writings on crucifixion from the ancient world. No Roman citizen could be crucified unless Caesar himself directed it. For Jewish people, there was nothing worse than crucifixion because Deuteronomy says, and Paul picks up on this in Galatians, if you die by hanging, you are cursed. God has turned his back on you. That's what Jesus entered into. Not just the ending of his life, but for humanity, he lost his humanity. Jesus has mocked his king, and the whole point is ironic because he is. He is king. They put the charge against him. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. Every prisoner condemned to death had a hand-painted board, usually hung around their necks, and then as they went to the cross, they would be removed from their neck and then nailed to the cross next to them. And again, ironically, states the truth. Jesus, this is him. This is the king of the Jews. The sign that hung over him spoke more truth than anyone could ever imagine. This is the one who is not only king of the Jews, he's king of all creation. He's king of kings. It's a beautiful bookend. In Matthew chapter 2, the Magi come from the east seeking the king of the Jews. 
And they are guided by this star that leads them to Bethlehem. And here at the end of Matthew, in the middle of the day, it's dark. The sun is blotted out, and yet there is still a sign over the one who is king of the Jews. No longer a star, but a hand-painted mocking sign that proclaims the same truth. Here he is. The people who mocked Jesus have amazingly, ironically, actually crucified their king. And what, and what, I, what I would call the saving irony, they exalt him as such. They exalt him as king. Jesus is lifted high, not on a glorious throne, but on a cross. Jesus is king in this scene, and he goes into battle, not with a chariot, not surrounded by heaven's hosts, but Jesus the king goes into battle all alone on a cross. Like a warrior king, he goes into battle. And he alone stands on the front line in our place, absorbing the full onslaught of our enemies of sin and death and the devil. And Matthew's point is that here is Jesus mocked as king. Cruel taunts, mock crowns, mock robes, mock scepters. But here is Christ crucified, the king of all kings and lord of all lords. Some of the guys right now are going through a study of the book of Revelation, which has these, these very different powerful pictures of Jesus' kingship, where he's reigning as king in glory and power, and they, uh, they have a pastoral function. John receives these visions in Revelation to pull back the curtain so that a suffering church can see that Jesus is on his throne. And that essential picture, we need that picture too, don't we? That essential picture of Jesus, our King, who keeps us and who upholds us and who protects us. All of those beautiful realities are grounded here, are guaranteed here, because here is the King who saves us. His activity just as kingly, saving us. At the cross, Jesus the King is reigning. Secondly, Jesus is mocked as the one who would destroy the temple, and yet he is the true temple, bringing sinners, bringing us into the presence of God. Jesus hangs on the cross as a public spectacle, and then we read those who passed by, right, public spectators, those who are passing by are deriding him. They're disgusted by this. They're wagging their heads. They're treating him like any other criminal. But this time, they have this accusation they find just silly and preposterous and so insulting. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. In verse 50, Matthew records that Jesus doesn't just pass away. Jesus doesn't just dissolve. He doesn't fade into black. But with a loud voice, he yields his spirit. Just as he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And we read of how his death is like this domino effect of power and glory, right? Uh, he, he yields his spirit and the earth shakes. And the curtain is torn. And as we'll see in a bit, rocks are split and tombs open. The earth shakes and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was the curtain that separated the holy place that's inside the temple where the priests did their day-to-day duties, where they did their ministrations. And that curtain separated the holy place where the priests ministered every single day from the holiest of places, the most holy place, the holy of holies. That's where just the high priest and just that one time, one day of the year, the day of atonement, that priest would go in to make the sacrifice of atonement on the mercy seat for all of the people of Israel. Only one man, only once a year, the high priest would enter into that place. 
And the curtain is torn. It's a 60-foot high curtain. So don't look at these curtains. These aren't going to cut it. It's a 60-foot curtain torn from top to bottom, symbolizing God is the one who is tearing his curtain. The perfect high priest Jesus entered the most holy place, not with animal blood, but by his own blood. Hebrews picks up on this all over. So in Hebrews 10, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. He is the curtain. Curtains symbolize separation, holiness. Jesus tore that curtain down and replaced it with his own flesh. How do we enter into the presence of God? Through Jesus. Yet at the cross, where he is opening up heaven to the world, he is mocked as the one who threatened the temple. But of course, in reality, Jesus is the one that through this very act of shameful crucifixion brings the temple to its end. Everything, everything the temple represented is fulfilled here at the cross. The temple answered the questions. I know you've heard me say this before. The temple answered essential questions of human beings. Where is God found? How can I know God? Where does God's glory reside? The temple rituals and the sacrifices, or many of the sacrifices, answered another key question. How do I, a sinful human being, meet safely with that God? And all along, the answers the temple provided were, from the beginning, signposts to Jesus. At the cross, Jesus is mocked as a silly threat to the temple, and in reality, he is making the temple obsolete. Jesus is the true temple of God, who even right this minute answers those same questions with far more power and grace. Where is God's found? Where where does God's glory reside? How can I approach a holy God At the cross, at the cross, at the cross. Jesus is the one in whom God is most perfectly and clearly seen, and it's at the cross where the holiness of God is displayed more clearly than the world has ever known. The holiness is on display. Because where else do we see the seriousness and the gravity and the weight and the tragedy and the destructiveness of our sin dealt with, poured out on Jesus? At the cross, the love of God was displayed more clearly than the world has ever known as Jesus absorbed the sinfulness of man, our sin, my sin, your sin, into the depths of his being. At the cross, not just the holiness, not just the love, but the power of God is on display because in his death is the death of death. And in his death is the death of sin and the defeat of the devil. Jesus is the great high priest who goes to the cross on behalf of his people. He's a sacrificial lamb who establishes access to God through the shedding of his own blood. He is the true and better temple. He is the true and better priest, altar and sacrifice. So what are we hearing? Jesus is mocked as the king that he is. He's mocked as the destroyer of the temple. and He's the better temple. And then finally, and this is the culmination this is, the, this is the point of, of so much of this. Is he is mocked as the Son of God, but it's through the cross, especially at the cross, that he is revealed to be exactly who he is, which is the Son of God. Jesus is led from the governor's quarters where he's mocked by the Roman soldiers to Golgotha. The, the condemned would carry the horizontal beam 
Uh, and it would be connected to the vertical beam once they came to the place of crucifixion. But keep in mind, Jesus is completely sleep depraved. Deprived. He's sleep deprived. He's been scourged, which is to be whipped, usually with, with stones and rocks attached to the whip. That often killed the prisoner by itself without crucifixion. Just a scourging would kill many of them. He's been beaten. So in verse 32, presumably Jesus can no longer carry his beam. And so a man is compelled, a man is forced to carry his beam. And we hear this man, Simon, from Cyrene. Now I want to take a quick detour because Simon is such an interesting character. Uh, we, we, we hear little here. His name is Simon. That's, that's a very popular Jewish name. He comes from Cyrene, which is in Libya. Why is he there? Because it's Passover. So he's one of the thousands upon thousands of, of pilgrims who have come into Jerusalem. Now Matthew just briefly names him. But Mark tells us that Simon, this presumably able-bodied man called out of the crowd to, to force to carry Jesus' beam, is the father of Alexander and Rufus. That's how Mark introduces him. This is Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now why is that interesting? Who were Alexander and Rufus? I don't know. But Mark's readers knew who they were. So what does that communicate to us? It means that this is informed speculation. Simon, this random man called out of the crowd, became a follower of Jesus, who had sons who were part of the church. What an image. Simon's life was changed by carrying a cross. And maybe this is the hard word, but I, th I think that, that paradigm, that picture never changes. We all become followers of Jesus by carrying a cross. He didn't carry Jesus' cross redemptively. He didn't die on Jesus' cross, but he shared in it. He shared in Christ's sufferings. For all of us, it's the same story. What develops faithfulness isn't prosperity. What develops a grasp of God's goodness and faithfulness and bigness for us isn't the good life, isn't when things are easy, but when we're carrying a cross, when we share in Christ's sufferings. Simon was the first. That's the detour. Jesus is hung on the cross and the insults don't stop. In verse 39, those who pass by mock him and the religious authorities join in. He saved others but cannot save himself. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now first of all, this is so key. Notice who mocks Jesus throughout this scene. The soldiers mock Jesus. The spectators, those who pass by mock Jesus. The religious leaders, those who looked on the outside to be the holy ones, they mock Jesus. And then the crucified, probably revolutionaries, but you would say the worst of the worst, they mock Jesus as well. And so from the ignorant, Roman soldiers have no idea who, who Jesus is. You have the religious, and then you have the worst of the worst. Now what's the point? The people, all of the people crucified their king. Everybody crucified Jesus. The cry of the people was, you who save other people, save yourself. What a sad confession. You who save other people, that's how Jesus is known, save yourself. The crowds jeer, come down if you're the son of God, but he stays. That's precisely the point. In not saving himself, he saves others. It was because he was a son of God that he did not come down from the cross. Leon Morris wrote, They said they would have believed he was the son of God had he come down from the cross. 
We believe he was the son of God because he stayed up. Friends, at the end of the day, it wasn't the nails that kept Jesus on the cross. It was his love and devotion to the Father and his love and compassion for those he came to save. From the moment Jesus gives up his spirit, we are confronted fully with who he is because the mocking is replaced with bold affirmations and confessions. The earth shakes and the ground opens, right? Already we are hearing, we are confronted with the justification from the Father for the Son. The justification of God takes over, it outshouts the voice of scorn and chaos. Something remarkable is mentioned, right? The curtain was torn, the earth shook, rocks were split, and tombs were opened. And then in verse 52, we have this strange passage. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now what in the world is going on here? Nothing else about this scene is said anywhere. We don't, we don't have any more information than what we have here. And undeniably, this is an outrageous scene. It's a crazy scene. But I think it's to be interpreted as it actually happened. Some commentators will remark it. It gives us symbolic language because Jesus' death affects the resurrection. But we have a literal darkened sky. We have a literal earthquake. And then all of a sudden, symbolically, bodies were raised. That doesn't make any sense. Instead, when the earth shakes, the tombs open, and then when Jesus is raised on Sunday morning as the first fruits, some others are raised as well and appear. The gates of the tomb that have been locked since Adam fell have been burst open by Jesus' death and resurrection. Matthew is communicating a significant theological point, which is that Jesus' death reaches back to the saints that preceded him. And they are raised in the same exact way as those who will come after. The opening of the tombs is a powerful, historical, symbolic event for the victory over death that Jesus achieved. Death has lost its finality and terror. But God is not the only one who responds to the death of Jesus. We're told that those who kept watch over Jesus, the Roman centurion, those who were with him, they had witnessed everything. They witnessed Jesus mocked. They witnessed the people's hatred. They witnessed him dying and darkness and the earth shake and they were filled with awe which is the appropriate response that we have seen of the people toward Jesus and his works and they confessed truly this was the son of God. Son of God is, that was used to mock Jesus by the end of the afternoon it's back in its rightful place. He is. He is. Alright so let's wrap this up. What, is, what does all of this mean? so powerful because unbeknownst to the mockers, unbeknownst to those who are expressing their hatred of Jesus, from their lips the gospel is proclaimed. He is exactly who they said he was. This is a hard passage to preach because in many ways I, I think every Sunday is, is rooted into this scene of Christ crucified. We preach nothing but Christ crucified because to be a follower of Jesus is to stay close to the cross. It's that simple and yet so hard. To be a follower of Jesus is, is to ask, how does the cross bear on this in my life? How does the cross inform everything? How does the cross inform my desires? How does the cross inform my hopes, my goals, my relationships, my attitude, my disposition, my feeling toward others? 
Because at the cross, we see here that we have a king who has defeated our greater enemies. As he reigned from the cross, and and we still have a king who reigns over all things from heaven's throne right now. So when we feel defeated by our sin, when we feel frustrated by our sin, we have to stay close to the cross to see that our sins are forgiven, absolutely, but to, to look to the crucified king who reigns. When we feel the chaotic uncertainty of the world, it's so tempting to buy into the narratives that are away from the cross. Narratives of restlessness, of insecurity, of anger, of fear. But our king holds all things together. Rest. He holds all things together. He's the king. We have the one in whom the temple is fulfilled. The one who brings us access to God, the one who transformed the glorious and terrifying presence of God's throne, he transformed it into something we only know as a throne of grace. If you're in Christ, you will never stand before the throne of God like Isaiah and cry out, woe is me. It's a throne of grace. It's a throne that Jesus occupies. Because the cross is the reminder that the way has been opened and he is the curtain. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I don't know if there's a single body in this room that doesn't continually need the reminder that the way is open. You stay close to the cross to remember the way is open. There's a new curtain, the flesh of Jesus. At the cross, we behold the Son of God, the perfect Son who became sin for us, who took our place, and and in our place, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, so that we may know that in Christ, God will never forsake us. Stay close to the cross. Stay close. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of the cross. Lord, it's everything. It's everything. Help us not only to know, but to live our lives conformed by the reign of King Jesus and conformed to the reign of King Jesus. In gratitude and confidence, Lord, would we enter into your presence in amazement and joy. Would we have our hearts and desires and wills shaped by the cross where we behold the Son of God, our Savior Jesus. And it's in his strong name we pray. Amen.